Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to In Defense of Ska. On today's episode, we welcome Santa Cruz Ska legends Slow Gherkin. Between 1993 and 2002, the group released a handful of singles and three excellent LPs. Double Happiness in 1996, Shed Some Skin in 1998, and Run Screaming in 2002. Today we bring on the three members that were in the band from the start and stayed until the end. Lead singer James Rickman, guitarist A.J. Marquez, and saxophonist Phil Boutel. They they give off the strongest Santa Cruz vibes <laughs> of, of anyone ever. Like, I mean, most people, if you say Santa Cruz, they say, oh, the place where they shot the Lost Boys. And I'm like, no, it's the place where Slow Gherkin's from. Yeah. <laughs> they definitely are big in San, in Santa Cruz. Yeah. Like they're able to play like gigantic theaters. I don't, I don't know how much that, I mean, I think it translated pretty well. They, they did some international touring. Oh, they, they, they toured, they toured, but you know, they, they, they would headline the catalyst main room and sell it out, but then they would tour and, and sell out, you know, sell like 50 to hundred tickets. So. Right. It was just a, you know, there was definitely a, a gap between their Santa Cruz status and, their national status. But the thing is, that's actually sort of a Santa Cruz thing. Like I know since I covered the music scene in Santa Cruz for the good times, that's not an uncommon thing. Like Santa Cruz bands can get really big locally and just not make it out of Santa Cruz very well. That's so weird. It's like a vortex that just keeps you trapped. (laughs) I can think of like the devil makes three is like one band that's done really well outside of Santa Cruz. They're from Santa Cruz. Yeah, they're a Santa Cruz band. They give no Santa Cruz vibes. <laughs> <laughs> that's because that's because they've like they've gotten on the circuit. They do really well, you know, in that okay. sort of sort of alternative country scene. The, I think the other thing that was always weird to me about Gherkin, two things. One, I always forget because there were so many people in Gherkin. I constantly forget 
like, oh, right, that person was in Gherkin. Like, I constantly forget that, like, Achilles was in Gherkin. Yeah, yeah. I know. I think and, of him as uh, the guy from Blindspot, but he was in Gherkin, too. Right. And then I always forget that Steve Choi was in Gherkin, and he's, you yeah. think of him as the guy from RX Bandits. Um, the other thing that I remember about Gherkin is they all, they never really dressed ska. Mm-hmm. They they gave off, like, really, really strong indie rock vibes. I mean, mostly because, because of James. Mm-hmm. And, and his like uh, thrift store shirts and like skinny little body. He always, he always came off way more as like a, like an indie rock front man, but he's front, you know, he was very comfortable fronting a ska band. Yeah. The first time I saw Slow Gherkin was Bay Area Ska. They were on, they were on that comp. And the first song on their, of their section of the Bay Area Ska comp is a super strong song. It's the one that starts with the line 14 years of cynicism, boredom and anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, like that whole lyric is like awesome poetry. Oh yeah. Their music holds up better than a lot of the bands from that era. I think. Definitely. Yeah. It's definitely more, especially, I mean, we talk about it a little bit, the, the last album that's where they kind of abandoned some of the ska stuff. I really, I really like that direction that they went. Mm -hmm. I think that if they'd stayed that course, I think they could have, they could have ended up like one of these, one of these other kind of more indie rock bands that has, you know, weirder instrumentation. You guys have all been in the band since the very beginning to the end, right? That's right. That's right. Somebody um, slapped up a photo of us in front of the catalyst. And I couldn't believe I couldn't, you know, thinking back to them, like there was only four of us in the band that is just, you know, more recent, recent recollections. Like, solid 10 eight dudes <laughs> mm-hmm. to start with only four how did we play ska with four band, four people in the band it's not possible did you guys start off like an op ivy sort of situation or what when you started out i don't yeah yeah that's right a guitar bass drums <laughs> And Alto Sax. And, and Alto Sax. And the Weasel pure, Horn. Pure Op Ivy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess there's that one song. So, yeah. Yeah. We were just Take Warning, except an entire band. <laughs> no, not Take Warning. Damn it. Uh, no more Bad Town. Bad Town. No that Bad one. Mm. Scott Cred revoked. Damn it. <laughs> so, Flat Planet, you know, when Flat Planet started in the early 90s, there was hardly any other ska bands in the Bay area, aside from like skank and pickle and some of the earlier bands. So I feel like you were one of the, one of the first bands that we met that we were like our we're peers with and that were started around the same time. And I remember playing with you guys. Um, God, I cannot remember the name of the venue, but it was right at the intersection of uh, Pacific right off the Vets freeway. Hall. I think oh, it was no. a vet's hall. No, it, it wasn't a vet's hall. It was an actual oh, venue. live stoop, live soup. Live yeah, soup. That oh, was it. Yeah. Live soup. Yes. Yeah, I don't oh, remember man. what year it was, but it was really early for both of us. And I, cause I remember you guys were like really young and awkward and like, you know, a couple of years later, you guys were totally really comfortable on stage and really energetic. But at that show, you guys seemed really, you know, like you were still new to the whole performing thing. Mm. A couple of years later, we were at least 17, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we would be talking about like 94, 95 right now. So we were, AJ and I were still in high school. Mm-hmm. Hell was two years older than us. But yeah, we were like mid to mid late teens at that time. So you guys started, so you guys got pretty big in Santa Cruz. When did you guys become sort of like 
the band in Santa Cruz? Hmm. You know, I have a memory of, and I think I can put this on when we would be 16 or 17, but walking up to what is now a defunct venue called Palookaville. And, Mm. you know, it was like a line of kids. Um, And to say kids, I mean, probably, you know, all teenagers. And I just remember walking in and that was a sold out show at Palookaville, 16, 17 years old. And I'm just like, we made it. This, (laughs) this is everything. This is my dreams come true. And I think, so I think that would have been, yeah, like 93, 94. Now we started in 93, bro. Okay. It would have been like five or six. Well, it was was definitely 95 because I remember we were selling out shows at Palookaville and you guys were still in high school. Yeah. For sure. ZK and I used to joke about that, how, you know, it'd be a Friday night and then you guys would have class with all the kids from the show, you know, on Monday morning. Wow. <laughs> okay, 95. That's amazing. 96. Yeah. I I I feel like it was I don't think I was ever like dropped off at one of those shows like I probably was driving. I definitely remember, you know, now that was later, but you know, having my scooter parked in front of Palookaville and the Alkaline Trio van ran over it pulling out <laughs> from the club. <laughs> they later made it on. right. They made it right. Yeah, that was much later on. Yeah. You know, Aaron, too, though, you talk about, you know, being big in Santa Cruz. For me, what I always think back to those times is that Santa Cruz had an amazing scene anyway. So even though we were selling out Palookaville as these young kids, there were a lot of bands, a lot of amazing bands, not, not you know, so many ska bands, but the punk scene, the indie scene was just blowing up. What were the other bands in Santa Cruz at that time? Ska bands or just Just bands, bands in were... general. We, um... I mean, the bands that people would have heard of were Good Riddance and Fury band at the time called Fury 66, Johnny P. Bucks and the Swing and Utters, later just the Swing and Utters. Mm-hmm. And then down to like the bands that we just idolized, like Vicious Midgets and Melting Pot, Fiend Master Freak. Mm-hmm. There's so many insane bands. Hedgehog. Um, Hedgehog. Hedgehog. Oh, oh Yeah. There were some great comps. Uh, that, punch. Yeah. <laughs> It'll, yeah. On and yeah. on. But it was, yeah, like Phil said, such a fertile scene. And mostly everyone was cool and didn't, didn't mind having total grommets around like us, just mm-hmm. the biggest suburban dorks showing up to their <laughs> shows and bugging them. Like I, uh, my, our friend Josh and I used to interview bands for the Santa Cruz High Trident we had like a music column. Mm. It's just Dorcas Malorcas, but everyone was nice to us. Did you guys ever um, play with or hook up with the Square Roots? They um, they were like the uh, definitely ear- earlier generation ska band from Santa Cruz. Yes. Definitely, yeah. You know, yeah, we, the Square Roots. Django and I used to have to sneak into. We would try to hop the fence of the Depot Club to watch the Square Roots play before mm. you know we were fifteen before Slow Gherkin. But they were definitely one of those big early influences of like, oh, those guys can do that. Amazing. Yeah. I remember um, one of their albums came out. We kind, we kind of poached um, one of our sax foot players, Rob Pratt, was, I don't say we poached him, but he was in Square Roots. And I remember him bringing this new record that they had put out and it just sounded so good. Mm-hmm. And for a band from Santa Cruz to sound that good, we we're like, 
how do we how do we work towards that? And honestly, you know, Rob uh, Pratt brought a lot of that mm-hmm. to Gherkin, professionalize the the horn section, you know, really think about things, guys, arrange it. Yeah. Make it make it pro. Yeah. Do you do you recall doing anything particular to get the fans to have them, you know, play a sold out show at Palookaville or did word just kind of spread without you guys really putting much effort into it? Oh, there was effort. You know, we flyered the whole town for every local mm. show we played. Uh-huh. Um, like every locker of every school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And there's just the and we just played constantly and mm-hmm. like, you know, from the one of the oldest bars in town, the Red Room, to parties all over town. You know, we covered it all. And we would try and you know, we'd try and get in at uh KZSE too and play shows not necessarily super correlative to upcoming stuff but um we just go up there and play and then always mention the next thing that's happening how many people that got out there i don't know but it felt like a good way to you know get it out there mm. so i'm not sure what point it happened but the thing that really struck me as unique about your guys' standing in santa cruz was that you got to a point where you could play the main room of catalyst and and i think sell it out but that's like a really big space that's like a thousand. I'm not sure what, what capacity that is, but that's a really big room. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty intimidating for sure. Compared mm-hmm. to AJ talked about the first time we were there with four of us. And I think there were more of us on stage than in the crowd. Mm-hmm. Right. Our first mm-hmm. show there. Mm-hmm. And then we're playing it with a full room and it took a while to really feel like we, you know, felt natural up there. Yeah. yeah. What was the first slow Gherkin show? Phil. Oh, yeah. Phil's my, in my house, in my living room. Yeah. How, how was that? Just tell us about it a little bit. Well, it was uh, epic. I, <laughs> it, it was, Phil was basically the lead singer at that point. And I think we played about, I, I want to say like maybe six tunes or something played like, um, you know, five originals and, um, step in stone. <laughs> Minor threat, stepping stone. We we also played Brave Captain by Brave Fire Captain. Road. Nice, right. nice. Um, but yeah, just a, you know, it was in Phil's mom's living room, which was a hub for us for sure. After school, it was right pretty much across the street, Kitty Corner uh, to Santa Cruz High. So we would definitely go after school, you know, during school sometimes to uh, sneak away and. Uh, there's a trampoline in the back. It was definitely like a hub of, of our crew. So to play there for our first show seemed only natural <laughs> with tolerant parents. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Shout out to yeah. Kim and Dee. Yeah. So, so what was Phil, Phil, what were you like as a front man? Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> terrible. The best thing the band ever did was uh, remove me from that position. It's great. Oh, balls. <laughs> And so James was drumming, I assume, right? And yeah, yeah, I drummed <clears throat> through '95. I think I drummed on the first album, and then I I was heading up to Berkeley to go to school, and I thought it's just insane. But I thought I was leaving the band, and like I needed to phase myself out. So we found Ollie, um, our once and future drummer, who's a jazz kid, and. Um, 
had never played ska. Mm. Like there was a learning curve there. You don't really go straight from jazz to ska, but we loved him so much. We did not even care how it sounded. It's pretty much we, we made the introductions and it's like, yep, he's our guy. Don't yeah. care what he sounds like. <laughs> and it, yeah. it just so I, happened that he became the drummer, the drummer for us, you know, the best drummer in the world for us. You're kind of painting it as though it didn't sound good at first, which is not how I remember. I do remember, you know, being like, I, you know, this guy is obviously the fit on the Braille level, but I remember there being some heavy meat and potatoes back in the day, you know, I mean, it was, it was there, it was, you know, it was there. Sure. We had to, you know, like coax him a little to, to, uh, keep that kick drum going, but, um, but it was always there. So by the time you guys put out your first record, so when, when Mike signed you to Asian man, you guys at that point were, you know, selling out, um, headlining in Santa Cruz at that point, right? Yeah. So you were pretty well established locally. Were you guys out touring it at that point or were you just getting out on the road? Um, we, we toured man. a bit. We had finished a tour, a small Western States tour with the janitors against apartheid. Oh yeah. We went up to Vancouver with punch the clown. Mm-hmm. And then our first national tour was 97 with the siren six. I think we were out about six weeks. I think Phil, you booked most of that one, didn't you? Uh, I did. I, I was the booking agent for some reason. Yep. Somebody <laughs> <laughs> that a fun, super rewarding? <laughs> it was. like As AJ said the other day, I, everything I, I learned everything I need to know about running a, a business and be, being an entrepreneur from playing in a 10-person ska band. <laughs> <laughs> one more thing. That's right. Yeah, I, d- I did all the booking too. That was just... Did you use Book Your Own Fucking Life or how did you book tours? Oh, with my, my, you know, my landline telephone, because we didn't have cell phones and we, you know, I had like a Unix email account, which was pretty hard to work with and nobody had websites or anything. So I would just call people all around the country nonstop. It was awesome. But but in terms of contacts, because I use Book Your Own Fucking Life to to find contacts in in states, where where did you find places to book? Did you look up clubs in the area or what? That's a great question. I don't remember. I know, I do remember (laughs) Book Your Own Fucking Life was in it somehow, but I don't remember using that as like my one thing. Um, I just remember a lot of time on the phone. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like your first album kind of gets talked about a lot, but when people talk about slow gherkin, but I feel like shed some skin is sort of like, for me, it's my favorite album. And I also feel like it was that moment where you guys were really trying to make a go of it. You know, you guys were, does that, is that how you guys remember it too? We were working very hard at that point. I know that, I know that much. Um, Leading up to the the, the recording of that album, we were working, you know, like almost every weekday um, practicing and writing tunes and just, yeah, really, really working, whether it was to the, you know, to what end, I don't know, but we were certainly like trying hard to, make sure that when we went in the studio, we really knew what we were going to do and, um, had, had practiced, um, mm-hmm. you know, had, had the tunes dialed. Yeah. I really like the elements of that record too, because your first record was always different 
than sort of what the stand the formula for Scott Punk was. But I felt like Shed Some Skin went further away from Scott Punk and really really accepted the sort of new wave elements and the and the rock elements within the formula even more so, which I really really liked about you guys in that album. Oh, thank you. Was um was there did was there a growing sort of you know influences that were coming in or were you were you trying to be different than you know the growing quantity of ska bands out there? I think there was a question of like quality control at that time whereas double happiness is pure delirium just like get mm-hmm. it out there it's got the energy that's all that matters and then we really tried to to write songs together on shed some mm-hmm. skin and and dig into the sounds that that we loved which in addition to like two-tone was like fugazi and then peter keyboard player brought in a lot of stuff like Elvis Catello and Squeeze and more poppy yeah. stuff. Yeah. So it was that and the fact that we were all out of high school by then. And there was, yeah, there was definitely more of a sense of urgency. Um, and so, yeah, we basically practiced like full time for, I don't know, how long was that filled? Like three months? We did. It was like 40 hour a week practices or more for three months, which you know, Aaron, you asked about were we consciously trying to avoid a certain sound or do anything? I don't remember that being the case. I think it's more like James spoke to these influences that we had and we had the ability to sit down together Mm -hmm. and then say, this is the sound we want. And, you know, I remember we chopped a lot of songs from the album. We had more than we needed. We spent a lot of time just going through and saying like, what's the, what do we want this album to sound like? What, what songs do we want on there and stuff? And it, but it was much less of an effort of, Oh, Scott Punk, this or anything else. Mm-hmm. It's just this is what we want to sound like, and that's part of what made the album so. Uh, I think a lot of people's favorites for us making it, uh, as far as internally, was like, "Hey, we got the sound as a band that we wanted," mm-hmm. um, which is really satisfying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot of ska bands at that point. You know, '97. I think you guys recorded that in '98. Yeah. At that point there was a lot of people putting out ska records and being a ska band. So there was definitely a sense of like you, you needing to stick out to some degree. So, I mean, I, I'd already quit. I'd already pl- quit flat planet by that point. So, but I remember even in like 95, 96, when ska started getting on the radio, just a little bit of having just a little bit of a reaction about being too much like that and being too much part of that scene and wanting to be recognized as being part of the sort of, underground scene that was that was happening at the time Mm. well when uh i'm sure like when did the the big real big fish album come out so real big fish's big album came out in early 97 but you started to see ska on the radio in 95 with uh, rancid and Uh uh sublime's date rape those songs came out in 95 and then 96 you see goldfinger's single and a few other things then 97 is when you see uh, Real Big Fish, Mighty Mighty Boston's big single, and Save Ferris, and then some other stuff too. So that's, I think, 97 is when it really went like kind of pop culture crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I don't think our position was like, fuck those guys. Like, we had no uh, 
animosity or any sense of superiority over the bands that were blowing up, but there was a quantity issue in mm-hmm. that everybody was in a ska band at a certain point. And yeah, the, the sense that it had to actually be good was getting lost. It was just like, get it out there, go. So I think Shed Some Skin was our attempt to actually uh, make an album that you could listen to more than six months after it came out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Did you feel anything about being, not a sense of superiority, but you could then since you were a band since 93 you started probably more than a lot of the newer bands coming up a sense of like well we really can't you know we we have to stick out too because we've been around we were playing ska when 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 there was like one or two other bands in town so you know there's that there's that situation too no <laughs> Yeah, no, I, you know, the only thing I would say to that is I feel like we, we had this when the machine was ramped up, you know, it wasn't so much about um, thinking about what other people were doing, but if the machine was ramped up and we went out and gave it our all that there's, there was this sort of sense, like, you know, at that moment for those, you know, 15 minutes when we really connect that we were like, the best band on the planet and that, you know, we bring that energy, like that sort of energy and have that kind of fun. And that was, I think the drive to, you know, it was just, let's attain that and give it our all. It wasn't about like, we need to hold ourselves to a certain standard or we need to do this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, we are just going to write, put a lot of effort in and write the songs that we want to hear and then just play the, you know, play them as, as hard and passionately as we could. Yes. For sure. Yep. In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024 these are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. So... I want to talk about the recording of, of Shed Some Skin. Um, James told me when I interviewed him for the book that Mike Park kind of lingered around the studio 
nervously (laughs) (laughs) and would pace and would say, nobody's going to buy this album and would kind of leave. So yeah, let's, let's hear, let's hear about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nailed it. I do remember, (laughs) I do remember like being, you know, an hour into a really painful vocals, you know, session, which I feel like, you know, if I'm playing my guitar, my guitar goes out of tune, I tune it up and that's at least some, a variable I can control, but my voice, especially back then, I just, you know, who knows? And I, I just couldn't get there. I was trying, trying, trying to sing this high part and uh and mike comes in with one of those basketball under his arm just like hey guys how's it going oh man what are this guy's dead why am i doing this oh no okay oh, i gotta go oh no <laughs> to instill confidence uh, thanks mike thanks mike thank you mike it's, it was so weird because he'd put us up in a really beautiful studio it's like couldn't you put us up in a slightly more <laughs> humble situation and not come in and just talk shit the entire time? <laughs> but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have it any other way. That album sounds amazing. He also did the the self titled Mu three thirty album. Uh, this guy Robert Berry. Robert and Berry. Yeah, a few others. It was slick, man. You know, analog. It was, of course, all analog. It was 1998 and two-inch tape. And a uh, guy, what did he have like a Porsche, a Ferrari? Ferrari. Ferrari. Yeah, like Magnum PI, red Ferrari. Yeah, slick and wonderful guy. Uh, and he took a call from Sammy Hagar, I think, when we were recording, right? Yeah. Hang on, guys. Hang on one sec. This yeah. is Sammy. <laughs> He's like, Sammy, listen to this. Yeah. Sammy's like, I got to go. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure Mike is still putting up the current Asian man bands with that kind of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I, I guarantee you that's probably still happening. Still yeah. is. I don't know. So yeah, yeah so, the whole thing, Aaron, you're asking about Mike in the studio. I think, I mean, I feel like I know Mike, of course, so much better now, and you know, I'd only known him personally for a, a year or two when we went to the studio there, and I think I would have been more used to the way he gets nervous about things like that or the things he says and that he doesn't necessarily mean them personally and he's mm-hmm. just nervous and that's totally legit. And, uh, I don't think that him being around the studio necessarily hurt us, but it helped us, re- you know, remind us that this is like, we, we got to get on it. You know, this, um, I don't know, this isn't the, what is it? The trailer out in Watsonville that we recorded our first seven inch on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, an actual trailer, uh, in a, in a Brussels sprout field, I think. Yeah, that's right. But I, I think about my interpretation of it, and I thinking of, and I think of the timing of it. Is you're talking 1998? Scott isn't dead, but it's. I think that he probably saw that it's starting to tip down, and that's probably why he was nervous, right? Because it was like, oh, is there even going to be an audience for this album by the time it releases? Did you guys, did, were you guys aware of or thinking about the fact that the Scott audience was maybe going away when you guys were recording that record? Um, I don't, I don't remember having any sense of that. I, I, you know, I remember thinking that this is a great album and it's going to be really fun to promote it, but you know, 
those those words and Mike's fear definitely populated my brain a little bit later. Yeah, I think yeah. same. Like I don't think Mike I think Mike saw a lot more than or at least than I did, right? Mm-hmm. He was totally right. He he could see it all coming and he had views into this stuff that I had no idea what the bigger picture scene was or something. I, like AJ, I'm just focused on, hey, let's do this great album and then let's go on tour because that's what you do after you do an album and can't wait. Mm-hmm. Well, dig this. I said this on the on that This Was The Scene podcast, but I hadn't even thought of it this way. And, and Phil and AJ, tell me what you think of this. 98, we toured like 11 weeks straight at the beginning of the year, ending with the Sky Against Racism show in Orange County, I think somewhere in a giant muddy field and it was Mm. fucking massive and insane yeah every band less than jake was just played to a a sea of people and um so that's early 98 in the fall of 98 we put out shed some skin and go out with the toasters and the shows are not selling out the toasters i don't think are doing as well as they expected to do they Mm -hmm. were still great shows but they weren't like it wasn't just packed from coast to coast. So I think it, that's the window from sky against racism to what, uh, like October is when, when it peaked. Does that sound mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Now that, I mean, when you say it like that, no, but I, it, you know, if it, shining a light on it really down to those dates. Yeah. That, that definitely happened. I think those tours were, you know, totally different phenomenons, but it definitely was right around there. Right. But, you know, the Scott against racism tour, I mean, you have 20 of the biggest underground ska punk bands, um, in the nation all under one tent. So that's a compelling reason for people to go out. So that was an epic show. Yeah. I mean, toasters, scoy slow gherkin, that's a solid building too, but, um, you know, wouldn't necessarily, I, I guess I, I didn't read it as clearly saying, you know, well, there's only a couple hundred kids here. Cause that's kind of what we're used to anyway, previous tours, you know? Yeah. Were you, Adam, were you on that? Was, was Link 80 on Scott against racism or we, was that? We on? only played one of those shows. We played, we happened to be driving through Vegas when they played the Huntridge. And so we, we just were going to go and hang out at the show. And then they they put us on first, oh, um, which was great. It was really fun to get to play that show. Was there um, a lot of people at that show? Yeah, yeah, there was a ton. Um, I I felt like for us and maybe just because we leaned a little bit um, more punk hardcore, like I didn't really notice a big shift away from people being down with ska until like two thousand. That's mm-hmm. when it really really felt like like a bad word. Mm-hmm. Oh man, yeah, we we've been going through hell for a year by then. I'm oh, wow. I'm relieved that you were spared 1999. I don't know what you were up to, but you, <laughs> I weren't hanging out with us clearly. So when when you guys did that tour with the Toasters, um, James told me for my book that John Avila, who's the bassist for Oingo Boingo, and he produced the uh, first Real Big Fish. Um, major label album that he approached, I assume just James. I don't know if he approached any other members um, saying that he like really liked you guys and wanted to produce some demos. 
Is that is that something that you that you guys were aware of too? Yeah, I mean, we had a full meet, you know, like um, I, I feel like in the green room of a club. Was it in New York? I don't know. Um, but I remember us kind of all standing around, you know, semicircle around him and him talking through a few things, you know, like, hey, work on some new tunes with this and this and this in mind. And um, that's the way I remember it. It's always fun to talk about these things that happened 20 years ago and be like, how do you remember it? That's kind of what I remember is, um, you know, us sort of lurking around trying to hear everything that he had to say and fully intending on uh, trying to do it. Do so what remember? happened? How come that didn't, how come that didn't materialize? Well, yeah, I was going to say, so, so partly what happened was, is that they didn't give him demos for like six months. Right. Yeah. That's part of what happened. Right. Well, we just gave him the, the split EP we did with our bandits, which is tap dancing and salsi puedes and not ska songs, you know, oh. <laughs> and it, but it had taken us that long to get, complete drafts of two songs, you know, the first half of 1999. So it just kind of, I'm baffled by that memory. Phil, you got anything else on this one? Well, do you mean the memory of the John Avila stuff or just yeah. why? Both, yeah, both. I mean, I remember the same thing about, you know, it was this big hype of like, oh, John Avila's here, we're going to talk to him and he likes our sounds. And we also knew we didn't have much in the tank. I just remember being so worked after that year, right? Yeah. Like, like you said, we toured, we were on the road for, you know, three months straight. And then we practiced for three months straight. And then we recorded, and then we went back on the road for another seven weeks. And, and we had all quit our jobs and, you know, strained relationships everywhere. Uh, so 98 was this amazing put out year where it just was fantastic. And at the end, we all just went, oh, there's nothing left in the tank right now. So how can we come up with more for John Avila or, or whoever else? Hmm. Um, even though it was exciting, you know, and people were still, it kind of did feel like the tail end because we didn't, it seemed like people we knew, peers that were getting signed earlier or getting whatever money to do stuff. It wasn't happening as much in, you know, early 99. We just didn't hear about it. Um, yeah. So uh, something was sort of in the air, I feel like, but uh, to me, it felt a little more uh, gradual than kind of an all of a sudden it's off sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Do do any of you guys happen to remember, I know this is probably a tough one to remember, but do you remember what kind of specific pointers he gave you guys, John did in that meeting? We, we took a lot of, uh, we had a lot of meetings with people that were trying to shape us into, I think, you know, more of a radio friendly kind of thing. And they seem to be pretty much the same, um, which is shorten your songs. Don't one of the ones that really st- stood out is don't stop the party. You know, we, we'd always do these intricate sort of breakdowns and find our roots, um, Fugazi and, breakdowns. Yeah, Fugazi <laughs> breakdowns or whatever. And, it, you know, we'd have these four and five minute songs, you know, and, and it was just like streamline this down a little bit, um, cut some fat and popify a bit. Um, I don't remember anything from the meeting with John that was different than that. You guys? No, I just think it was implied that, like, don't stop playing Scott and don't start thinking you're rocket from the crypt or 
I know if you're not like kind of what we did. Don't become rock with horns. Yeah, which is exactly what we did. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So here's here's a funny story. Um, I interviewed John for my book, and after I interviewed him is when James told me this story. So I emailed him. I said, Hey, um, I was talking to this band slow Gherkin and, and I told him the whole story. I was like, what do you remember of that? He goes, I have no memory of that whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. He's like, I don't remember a band called slow Gherkin. <laughs> oh, geez, that's embarrassing. Wow. <laughs> well, wait, did, did he come around or did that, he, that's it? You know, no, no, he, I, yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I got details from James. I was like, I just gave him every single detail I could just to see if it jogged his memory. He's like, no, I'm sorry. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Well, well you know, at least, uh, at least you have other members of the band to corroborate your story with. I kind of remember that he liked one song, like he liked another in your life and was like, that's the one, you know, let me hear more of that. Yeah, and, and there was no follow up to that one, or you know, hmm. you got you, you guys are actually like really pop friendly though. That's the thing is like you guys really could have been tailored to a pop market just because your songs are catchy and, and stuff. Thanks, I, but it was different than what was on the radio for ska though. That's the only thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. It's interesting anyways. Well, I mean, you know, we took all that advice to heart. We really did. And Mm -hmm. we really, I can't tell you how many times, how many times during a, you know, songwriting practice that we were really doing our darndest to cut the stuff that's just the, just get to the essential bit of the tune. Mm -hmm. Um, But we just, you know, hadn't learned that lesson enough to be able to get a song down below four and a half, four minutes, you know, <laughs> and I said, well, this is it. This is, oh, this yeah. part's essential. <laughs> but you see us uh, internalizing all of that on run screaming where the songs are short again and concise and follow the structures and, you know, that's cool. But I like sheds. I like the shed some skin kitchen sink. Mm-hmm. method way better for us that is us we're not mm-hmm. we're not writing slick concise pop songs we're writing massive cluster fucks where everyone's going off at the same time yeah mm-hmm. yeah no i mean that is that is true that's that's you guys at your peak <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about run screaming i'm gonna so i'm gonna open this up with james's full quote on the run screaming era and then we'll get we'll get everyone's everyone's take on it. All right. We felt like we were the we felt like we were just the lamest guys around all of a sudden. We did what so many other ska bands did, which was we suddenly got totally self-conscious. That was the real sellout moment, I think. All ska bands got mocked all of a sudden, and we were like, abandoned ship. I like run screaming, but we, you know, we wrote great songs, and but it's not a Scott album. It's a pretty chicken shit move. On one hand, we were getting to be a better band, but we were having a total identity meltdown right in the middle of that. Mm. Well said. So yeah, <laughs> I would love to hear. I would love to hear your guys' take on that. And I'd also, I'd also like to hear 
if there was discussion about removing upbeats, because that was the main thing with Run Screaming, is that it was it sounded like Slow Gherkin, but just removed upbeats and make it sound a little more like a rock song. Um, was that in? I mean, was that entirely on me? <laughs> Did I make this not a ska <laughs> band? No, the guy upbeats. You know what I mean? I mean, like the the Gherkin was so you know, nary and up. I mean, I was always on that like clackety clackety upbeat stuff, but I don't feel like, you know, if that is the definition of a ska band to have someone, you know, chicken picking, <laughs> snapping away at that thing, like then, you know, and without the, with the absence of that, then you're not a, you know, not a ska band. I, I, but I guess truly like I didn't, you know, I wasn't playing, I wasn't skanking along to those tunes. But it just wasn't, it didn't seem like the right thing to do at the time. I don't think it was about like, let's make these not ska. Do you remember ever discussing the ska guitar, Jim or Phil? No. No, I don't remember any discussion at all about are we ska or not. We were just really trying to keep it together and write new songs. And that's what was happening. It's what we were listening to. I think you can very clearly hear that we started listening to Supergrass a lot. Yeah. Um, and yeah, oh, yeah. Phil, what do you remember a band meeting where it was like item one ska or no ska? No, I, I think you guys are right. I think, I think we noticed it, like acknowledged it in passing and kind of like shrugged our shoulders like, well, that's cool. Uh, and I mean, I agree with you that in general, it was more about who we were listening to and what kind of songs we wanted to write as a band at the time. Um, then a particular, you know, it's not ska mm-hmm. um, type of thing. And it's more, even when we put the album together, because there was a lot of changes that happened in the studio. Um, you know, uh, we went, we went into uh, to record Shed Some Skin so polished in advance. Right. Um, and then run screaming less. So, right. We did a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of work there that it's more, we left the studio and we're like, yeah, that's what it sounds like. And that's mm-hmm. what we wanted. Um, and not necessarily chasing ska or anything else just trying to get our sound. You know, one, one, um, one thing that occurs to me is, you know, at, uh, during Ren screaming area, we, we didn't have Peter on keys anymore. And so Phil was covering the key parts and he'd be, you know, playing horn lines a lot. So it wasn't, you know, just choruses or verses where there's an organ player skanking along, you know, cause I, you know, in, in our earlier stuff, we played with rhythm, you know, played with the rhythms until the groove was right. And then inevitably that'd be based around someone skanking somewhere, whether it's me or Jim or uh, Peter. Um, but, you know, with few, without that kind of rhythm uh, structure, I think we just found other groups. We're just like, Oh, this is bouncy. Let's do it like this. This is cool. You know? Um, and so we didn't have two people, two essential skankers there to bounce off of. Yeah. I, I remember seeing you guys during this period at the um, at the fishbowl in uh, San Jose, and I remember a distinct lack of of the like flicky flicky guitar ska part, mm-hmm. yeah. but not not feeling like you guys were suddenly not a ska band. I just felt like you were maturing as a ska band because I felt like the like especially like the fast flicky flicky type stuff on the guitar always came off to me as kind of the goofier ska. And I, I remember distinctly noticing that you guys were doing a lot more like the syncopated, like down picking Fugazi style type mm-hmm. stuff on the guitar. 
And I, I would it, hope, still, it still seemed ska. It didn't seem yeah. like a total departure. No, it was compatible. It wasn't this total, you know, about face. It all, mm-hmm. you know, and we still play, we play those songs back to back from from the first album to Run Screaming, and there's continuity there. But it just shifted. And just having this conversation right now, it's hitting me that like, it really was not a deliberate move. It was so much in the air of our scene and our culture that we didn't have to have that very consequential discussion. Is our next album going to be ska or not? Mm-hmm. That's just what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I also feel like, I mean, you guys brought up the Siren Six earlier as, as a touring mates. And I feel like as far as ska bands go, the Siren Six was like the coolest ska band. Like yes. they looked cool. Their songs were cool. Like everything about that band was cool. And I remember going to see them at the Cactus Club when they had stripped down to a five piece. So then the name didn't make any sense. <laughs> and they had completely removed any ska and they'd replaced it with something that I I can't, I don't even know what it was, but it was not good. And they also had stopped doing the all black thing and they were all just kind of wearing whatever street clothes they wanted to. And it, and I remember I I dragged my brother to the show and I remember turning to him halfway through and just being like, I'm sorry. Like it was, I feel like that was, that was kind of a more like, you know, if you want to say chicken shit, chicken shit move, like to completely strip, obviously strip out the Scott, even of the old songs. Yeah. Oh, wow. From your mouth to John Rannick's ears. I mean, um, I love Siren <laughs> Six, but that show sucked. Oh shit. Well, I, I will just throw in, first of all, I think to me, those guys could never do any wrong. They, some of their most incredible demos came at the very end. Nobody ever heard mm-hmm. them. Yeah. But, um, it also reminds me, um, I think it's so weird that this doesn't come up whenever bands like ours talk about this shameful turn away from ska uh, is the fucking specials like from starting with their second album, uh, Jerry kind of got weirdly obsessed with Muzak and seemed yeah. to completely mm-hmm. lose interest in this genre. Who's who's sort of second coming. He had launched and the more I kind of boned up on the specials, the more I was like, holy shit, they did something very similar. They fractured and the at the at, from the very core, you know. So it didn't uh it didn't just start with us nineties. No the, the Jerry at Dammers actually his intention from the beginning was to always move past ska. Um it's funny because that second album was probably more ska than he intended because the rest of the band were like, Hey, what are you doing? Yeah. We got a good thing going. Why are you moving us away from ska? So I think there was a tug of tug of war and that there's, that's why it's kind of ska, kind of not ska. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I but, just love that it goes back that far. You know, there were always just endless fights about, you know, selling out and pu- this idea of purity, which is really mm-hmm. fucked up if you think about it now. And, um, but if you go back to the band that like seemingly every skanker could agree on the specials, no matter how trad you are, everyone loves the specials. And by album two, they were like piecing out. Right. I think it's an interesting, like I, 
there's a dilemma with ska bands. Like, of course, you should never play anything that you don't want to play. And if you don't feel like playing ska or if you feel like expanding it, you should. But there's that thing where some people do grow musically and then other people feel it's driven. They're driven by shame in some level or like just awareness of how ska is perceived and not wanting to be perceived that way. So obviously there's no rule like you need to be play ska all times, but yeah, I mean, I think it's about motivation and intention is, is what is what's most interest to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's important to, you talked about the shakeups between 98 and 99 for us. Yeah. For me, that's part of what the, you know, it's not just our influences and who we were, our band, you know, we lost, three members and, you know, and move things around. And so of course we're going to have a different sound because we write things together as a group. Right. Um, We go from ZK playing essentially eighth notes, bass nonstop every time to Brendan, who's playing with a ton of space. Um, Right. He leaves a lot of space in there and is playing in a lot of rock bands. So uh, right there, the people driving the bus are making a different sound. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and I think too, you know, there's something for me about leading back to that John Avila discussion. This I remember distinctly talking about when we lost people in the band and we had these big talks of like, what are we going to do, you guys? Are we going to call it quits or, or should we keep this going? And then if we keep it going, what does that even mean? Mm-hmm. And, you know, AJ, James, tell me if I'm wrong, but my memory is we said, let's keep it going, but let's go low pressure and let's just try to have fun with it so we can you know, cause that seems like the best part and let's stop chasing whatever it was we tried to chase for a while. Cause that was brutal and people left the band and, you know, we had strained relationships and stuff. And so even though the run screaming era was different and, you know, a different kind of projective, it was also uh, in a way somewhat more engaging and satisfying because there wasn't mm-hmm. as much tension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I do remember something like that, Phil, like uh, of, um, you know, I think we went from, a 10 piece down to a seven piece essentially. And there was this real sense of like, okay, everyone is super in it right now and it's light and easy to, um, to create with and to be on the road. And, you know, so yeah, I do remember something like that. We'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. So you definitely, there was definitely a period where you guys felt like you had a shot at sort of, you know, you quit your jobs, you know, you felt like there was a chance at least that you guys could make music your career as adults. And that basically, you know, in, in in 99, I think the realization that that wasn't going to happen or that you didn't want to pursue that anymore kind of came up. Did you say 99 or 2019? (laughs) (laughs) it's gonna happen man hey man you know i'll get some hair dye going (laughs) shed about 30 pounds i would like to hear phil's answer to this because he 
he was really more of a grown up and he was really <laughs> what like Phil was always working whether at home or on the band and I I can't speak to this at all cuz I came from a you know a comfortable upper, upper middle class milieu so it was all a fucking well what's funny James I was just thinking how you know I spent a good you know, from when you guys graduated high school in 95, again, I was two years older. I just remember pressuring you and pressuring Matt and pressuring anyone who was thinking of it not to go to college just to say, yes, let's just do that later because we can do this now. We can do college later. And, and, you know, and you guys went to college and it was fine. And I went to college and I dropped out and that was fine too. But then as soon as the band basically stopped playing, you know, I went back to college in 2001. And so I'm the one that gave up on a music career sooner than many, right? I was like, oh, now what am I really going to do? Hmm. Um, and then discover the bricks, of course, at that point, which is a whole different podcast, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Shed Some Skin, though, that was recorded in like 2001 or 2002? Or was it earlier than that? No, well, Run Screaming Skin was 98. Run Screaming recorded early 2002, put it oh, yeah, out. Oh, yes, I meant, yeah. Yeah, Run Screaming, early 90s. Uh, Run Screaming, we re- recorded early 2002, put it out that summer and toured with the Plus Ones and the Huxtables, our other band, feature mm-hmm. almost all members of Slow Gherkin. And, uh, and then right after that, I moved to New York. Um, I see. What yeah. was the deal with the Huxtables? It was, I mean, I remember AJ, you fronted that band, right? Um, I, I, uh, we, we had a buddy Colt who, Cole, yeah, Colt with a T, Colt. Oh, sorry, Colt. <laughs> who, um, you know, the, the, the quick story was you driving around in him with his car, you know, in his Nissan Sentra. And I'm just like, this dude can sing and needs, <laughs> and he's also, you know, one of the most hilarious of all of our buddies. And, um, so we just put a group together and that was you know, a way to a lot of, a lot of uh, my tunes that wouldn't be appropriate for Gherkin. I would uh, put out as Huxtable's tunes. We'd write up, build out as Huxtable's tunes, um, you know, and that's the kind of thing, uh, you know, the Huxtable's sort of faded away, but uh, play every so often or, you know, get together. We, we just did a show last year, a couple few songs. So really fun sort of side project with essentially <laughs> Gherkin and then a buddy Colt. <laughs> how how would you describe the music for somebody you're meeting for the first time? Uh, just, I would say pop. It's just pop. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I'm like, I love, I love pop and uh, yeah. And then James, when you moved away, you started, was that sin in space? Was that in Santa Cruz or was that in New York? Oh yeah. I, I mean, that wasn't my band. I was very lucky to play in sin and space, but they had, oh, you were, out- Sorry, I didn't know you played with Sin in Space. I did. I moved in with them um, in 2002, and uh, their incredible guitarist Kirsten was about to have a kid, and um, yeah, a kid who was old enough to drink now. Wow! But she, yeah, she was very pregnant, and I stepped in on guitar, and then sometimes she would play, and we'd do five piece. But they had, I think, they put out Asteroid Band in 2000, and. I think you can find it out there. All you listeners in podcast land uh, should really look up this album. For my money, it's the best 
Santa Cruz album that's ever been uh, created. And yeah, uh, it's it's amazing. Yeah, I, Peter took me to see them in like '98 or '99, and I, yeah, I was totally blown away. Incredible song. Yeah, yeah. great Cassidy, who I can't remember what year he died, but um, it was a great, great loss. So when you moved away, that was basically the end of Gherkin or at least the end of Gherkin in, in any, in any way that precluded re- reunions or occasional kind of stuff. Yeah. Very, very short answer. Yes, we did. Like we turned around right the next year and, and went to Japan for the first time and we did more UK and then, and then these reunion shows started rolling out and we've been doing them ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, that was the end of a nine year run where we were all going, or at least the three of us on this app were pushing hard <laughs> for nine years. I, I don't just mean only the three of us. I mean, yeah, you know, including- but were you guys, were you, when you did run screaming, was it a winding down sort of thing or were you guys still pushing hard or was it like at that point? you already were moving forward in a different direction in your life with that still a thing that you did for fun. I think for most people, the writing was on the wall. I like, don't think I really absorbed that until, um, you know, sometime later, probably after we were actually not even playing a band in a band anymore. But I just remember there was sort of a, um, like a cheesy promo photo in our, practice studio that I think James had scribbled on like a speech bubble out of all of our mouths. that was like, I quit. And, you know, there was this sort of like, <laughs> this sort of, um, you know, kind of air about it that like that was happening, but you know, I'm, I'm kind of the, the last person to leave generally. <laughs> so that was my role in that. I see. Now we knew cause I, I left for grad school. So I had to actually get admitted there at a certain point and even before that i i think we did know and and people just couldn't hit the road and not make money we never made money we could do some little payouts at the end but i think we knew mm-hmm. you know those tours to making money on the road even as a small seven piece band right was so hard uh you know was it 2001 or when did we tour with the gadgets? Was it that last tour? Uh, I think we got one. And they, you know, they used their recording money to buy a house. And mm-hmm. we looked at that and we thought, that's amazing. We will never be able to do that. You know, we work as hard as we can just to barely pay the food. And like when we're on the road, basically, that's all we can survive is gas and food. And how can we, who are now, you know, approaching our whatever mid 20s, what's our long-term outlook? So I think a, f- a few of us, it was like, well, we, we definitely, this isn't forever. We can't do this full time. But, uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier, it kind of didn't matter because we, we loved each other. Mm-hmm. We were in this great position to play this amazing music together. And so it was, uh, and, and not to say that we were all deadbeats, but it's like, what else were we going to do? It was a once in a lifetime experience that at least I thought, like, mm-hmm. like I mentioned, I can do college or, you know, my quote, real job or whatever it is later, but mm-hmm. th- this is it with these guys. And knowing that James was moving away, you know, made it all, all that much more like, yeah, let's do what we can right now. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the right attitude to have. I mean, I think I was pretty stressed and anxious about getting, you know, into my twenties and with music and stuff and feeling like I needed to go to college and all that stuff. But I think it's dumb. I think you should delay that as long as possible. If you have a band going and just, because you don't, yeah, you can't, you can't be young and in a band forever. And you can't be old and in a professional band unless you're young and in a band and that makes it. Yeah. Well, think of it. We used to play with what undercover SKA. Yes. Mm -hmm. You guys play with those guys. Right. And these guys were in their, they must've been in their forties. And in so many ways we laughed at them, but then in retrospect, it was like, man, those guys were having so much fun still playing rad ska shows and they've been doing it a long time. Um, yeah, so uh, I don't know. It's a different perspective for sure. And we so, have certainly said that in Brick's shows. We're yeah. like, we go up and we play and we're super tight and good at our instruments and playing slower. And it's like, oh, we are undercover SKA right now. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not playing with we're super friendly, <laughs> super nice guys. Great song. But um, so there's there's a thing about slow gherkin though, and we kind of talked about it at the beginning is that you guys were so big locally, but you guys never really that never really translated nationally, right? You never really had that kind of audience or even a comparable version of the audience nationally, right? Well, we had it in Orange County, mm. and there was a time that we did pretty well in Petaluma, you know, in Sonoma County. We, that was like our rotation. We never got it in San Francisco or definitely not San Jose. Um, but those were, we could, we could tour those three cities over and over Santa Cruz, somewhere in Orange County and uh, in North Bay, we would have just killed it. And I feel like our, our own draw nationally, <laughs> like it's probably between 50 and a hundred. And at the time it was like, fuck Yes. There are 50, 50 people we've never met mm-hmm. who came out here. Like, how is that even possible? And I still feel that way. Yeah. No, it's cool to have like, you know, it doesn't have to be a lot of people, but if you have people that are like super fans from like other parts of the country, that's just really cool. I know. It's, it just seems magic to me. And then you have people like, it's interesting, you listen to people like Jeff Rosenstock and some of those people who are like a little bit younger. They're just like, just, I feel like you guys are like ska gods almost. It's just, it's so interesting. That's just, I feel like so much of this episode is just gaslighting between John Avila and what you just said that I I don't even have a response. I'm just going to lie down. I'd like to ask about something really quick. Um, what do you guys, so we talked about how like 98, 99, like you really started to feel like being in a ska band wasn't the coolest thing. What do you think was the catalyst for feeling that way? Like what, what about ska was turning everybody off? Uh, there were some like just so hooky, sugar candy pop ska songs that um i think got played and played and played and and didn't have the kind of like you know longevity that uh or just you know anything i mean what songs are are spinning on the radio every day that can 
withstand that that you know not a lot of not a lot of contemporary pop a lot of stuff does pull it and makes it for decades and decades and but you know the songs that were happening i think it just kind of like scorched earth a little bit um and then you have a lot of um other bands that are like oh this is you know we need to do this but they don't have the the talent or the experience to do it as well as some of the bands who are you know putting out these super polished things and it just uh scorched the earth with some really hard to uh handle Mm -hmm. music I, i think that's that's a bit of it but what is it that's unique to ska given that every genre every trend is going to have that backlash and it's going to burn out at least temporarily whether it's ska or like bands suddenly sounding like dirty projectors but with ska is it just that there was so much joy that it's so inherently dorky because everyone is basically running in place as fast as they can Uh (laughs) sweating uh like yeah, that's a that's an easy target. That's some low hanging fruit right there. If you want to be embarrassed about something or contemptuous of something, so maybe it's that. But it's also the fucking best thing about it. It's what makes yeah. it. And I've really arrived at this conclusion: the best genre, <laughs> simply because <laughs> it brings the most joy. Yeah, that's you know, right. Aaron, did you know? Well. Uh, you could have missed it. It uh, uh, we, we recorded two songs a couple of years ago. Yeah, I, I heard it. I like I like those songs. Yeah, and and if you listen to those songs, I mean, I think this was another great like Slogarkin. We got together, and you know, James brought in the the solid solid bones of a song, and it was almost done. And Peter did the same, and then we buffed them out and turned them into Gherkin songs. And those are both uh, classic sounding Gherkin ska songs, mm-hmm. right? And I, I would say, I mean, James, correct me if I'm wrong in years, but I don't think Peter wrote it because he wanted it to be a ska song for the sake of being ska. This is just the song that he wanted to write mm-hmm. as it related to the band. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I think if I want to comment on James's point, like I do think that the joy aspect is definitely makes it low hanging fruit, but I think, the way that Scott became such an embarrassment had to do with how outside forces were starting to define Scott. I think that outside forces, be it MTV or people who weren't really in the Scott scene that were starting to become aware of it, were starting to define it as like super nerdy kids with like the goofy hats. And, and I feel like that was a part of it, but it wasn't the entirety of it, but they started to paint this picture as though that was just the entirety of Scott. And eventually it's like you had to prove that you weren't that if you were part of the Scott club. And that's, I think what definitely became a, a challenging thing, especially as you're in a band and you're becoming in your, in your early twenties, your mid twenties, and you don't want to be seen as like a nerdy kid. And everyone kind of thinks of ska that way at that point. Yeah. I, th- I think to Aaron, not everybody in the band, even, even though I think the three of us, pretty well represented that it, we didn't stop playing because we disliked it. It's just like what our influences were. Mm-hmm. I think at least one or two people in the band were pretty clear that they were not listening to ska at all. And they were over it and uh, you know, not enjoying that part of the band, like embarrassed, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, 
you know, maybe that was my personal take on it. Um, I just didn't care as much about what people thought, but um, some people were pretty over ska and I, whether that's peer pressure, you know, or there weren't as many ska bands playing our peers that we'd go out on the road with. We weren't going out with ska bands as much anymore. Mm. Um, people were not playing ska. They were, they were also transitioning. I think it's a normal thing. On one hand, I think it's a normal thing when you start to get to be like 22, 23, that you move, that a certain percentage of people just naturally move away from ska. But I think if you add to that, the atmosphere of 99, 2000, it's a, it's definitely a compounding effect of moving away from it. Mm. But I think like a lot of people, they get to be in their early twenties and they just start discovering more like indie rock or more music. That's a little darker sounding, a little more sad sounding. I just think it's mm-hmm. part of growing up, you know, shedding some skin, shedding some skin. Yeah, it's so funny what you just said, Aaron, about, about Scott getting defined by people outside of, of the scene, people actually making it or supporting it. And uh, I just picked up Carrie Brownstein's book um, about her life in Sleater Kinney, um, where she talks a lot in the early chapters about Riot Girl and how that got co-opted and became this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. cumbersome thing that, um, that they then had to sort of, um, do damage control on that. It started out as being this very nurturing, amorphous, decentralized thing, and and I that's probably true of every scene, movement, sound that blows up. Is you have to at a certain point, as the price of success, you have to grapple with the label that's being applied to you. And I suppose mm-hmm. if I could change anything, I would have grappled with it by owning it by doubling down on it twice as many upstrokes would have been our sound (laughs) like but it'd be fucking rad was can i ask a question really quick steve Choi was in was in slow gherkin for a little bit right yes he i think did a tour with us okay did a tour where he started the first half of the tour on keyboards and then switched over to drums uh, about halfway through and i mean that's miraculous yeah but he's a pretty miraculous musician he, he is he, he played at one at least one show he played let me start that again he played every instrument in the rhythm section for at least one show he wow. played drums bass guitar and keys for us at different times Wow. Was he was he playing with you guys when he met the RX Bandits guys and joined that band? I hope so. I don't, we take I don't know. I, I kind of think so. We we were, you know, Choi was living in Santa Cruz um, at, at with a couple other friends, and we were certainly so tight with the Bandits. I would guess that was how, but who knows? Yeah, I think, I think that's what's happened, because I've heard the story before, but he just has, I don't think he said it was Slow Gherkin by name, but he said he was living with some dudes in Santa Cruz. Yeah. Well, that, uh, yeah, that would be, yeah, that would be, that would count be. it. Yeah. Count it. You guys Mark are some it. dudes. <laughs> we are. Yeah. Do you guys remember when I accidentally unplugged your amps at, um, at the fishbowl? At the fishbowl. You guys, somebody broke a string. And so I was thinking I'd be helpful. And you know, that place was set up so weird that it had booths in the back that the stage was butted up against. And all of your, all of your gear was like piled back there. 
like and like coats and backpacks and stuff. So I I'm like I, I'm scrambling over all that stuff to get to where the strings are to like change a string. And then I crawled back across and, you know, there was a like a power strip like dangling and it was powering like all the amps. <laughs> Everything. And I and I just knocked it out of the wall and like so the middle of the song just stops. And I'm like, I scramble and like jam it back into the wall, but like everybody's looking back at me. I mean, I can, I can close my eyes and see AJ's wow. face looking that at me. That one's burned in there. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Adam has tons of stories about ways that he fucked up other bands' gears. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. I want to, I want to thank you guys for coming on and uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, man. Yeah. That's a lot of fun, Aaron. And, yeah, uh, good, talking, thank you. good talking to you and Adam and uh, and my guys up there in Santa Cruz. I also just want to tell you guys also the last time I saw you play with for the Mike Mike Park's birthday, um, I I was standing back by the soundboard and I was like half watching the show and half looking at my phone, and then I was like, "What the fuck am I doing?" I put my phone away, and I just watched your whole set because I was like, "When am I going to get to see these guys play again?" So. Just know that like I had one of those nice moments of just like coming to my senses and like watching an actual show instead of like half-heartedly like scrolling through my phone and being a fucking dumbass. So thanks. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you haven't already, subscribe to my Substack at aaroncarnes.substack.com and if you'd like to pre-order my book In Defense of Ska go to clashbooks.com it releases on May 4th 2021 and on that note we leave you by saying Ska now more than ever thank you Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.